0: Hey folks, welcome back. This is Andy and this is the Pork Rolls Almanac. Today, we're gonna to be talking about cows and bees with Dr. Ryan Schmidt and Katya Busenitz from the Ekdysis Foundation. In this conversation, we talk about the relationships between grazers and bees, both honeybees and native pollinators. I think you guys are gonna really enjoy this conversation as it ties together a lot of the different subjects that we've talked about over the last three years. So take a listen and let us know what you think. Katya and Ryan, thanks so much for coming on the talk. Please introduce yourself.
1: Hi, I'm Katya Busenitz. I'm a master's student uh, studying honeybees.
2: Uh, and I'm Ryan Schitt. Uh We're both at a Gysis Foundation here, and I, uh, I study dung beetles and beneficial insects for ranchers.
0: I got to ask first for you, what came first, the cattle or the bees?
1: That's for you. Oh, <laughs> so I kind of got thrown into bees. I've never been a i never worked with bees before, and I came out here to a like uh, where we study agroecology and kind of like regenerative agriculture. And our boss, John, he kind of just threw me out there. He was like, go work with the bees. Uh, this is a hive tool, and <laughs> this is a suit, you know. <laughs> so I got thrown out there. So for me, the bees came first. And then Ryan's been doing ranching, ranching stuff for a while.
2: Yeah, I, I grew up on a small cow-calf operation in northwest Iowa, and- so that's where I first got interested in, in cattle and livestock management and took a weird turn studying insects for quite a while. It's been kind of bizarre that it came back full circle now. Now I can combine those two things together. And now we're looking at these.
0: Yeah, that's awesome.
2: Yeah.
0: <laughs> he went from the biggest animal in the landscape to the smallest animal in the <laughs> landscape and then brought them together.
2: Yeah. Yeah.
1: And they're both connected. That's the coolest part. Yeah.
0: Yeah, that's... I mean, I guess it's like one of those things that's like not totally unsurprising, like everything's connected and you know, even from like a very fundamental level, you think about like, okay, you need insects to break down cow dung. So, like there must be a correlation between the landscape or the the ruminants on the landscape and how that impacts the diversity of the bugs on the landscape. As a farmer who does mob grazing and also I have some bees, It makes a lot of sense when you start thinking about it. My first thought was really around this idea of, okay, if I'm trying to make each better, what's the best option? And around cattle, I would imagine like letting grasses grow a little bit bigger might make it uh, reduce bloat with like forbs and allowing them to flower would provide some nectar for bees. But I'm assuming there's probably a lot more to this than like something as simple as that. So uh, I guess whoever wants to talk about it, you know, is that about accurate or is there a lot more going on? (laughs)
2: <laughs> All right, yeah. Uh, so like, yeah, at a 30,000 foot, foot uh, view on the system, that, that's pretty accurate. But you like to mention it's, it's very complex. So uh, these grassland systems are complex. And there's actually a lot of interactions. If we just want to focus on the, the three players of bees and cows and grass, there's a lot of interactions that they have with one another. And typically, it's kind of done indirectly through the soil, the plants, how you touched on cows, poop, insects start the nutrient cycling through the soil helps plants, bees. But there's some interesting stuff to it. So let's, let's use that as our model, I guess. Uh, Cow feces, it's rich in nutrients. And if anybody cares to to know when a cow pees, it's about 95% water, 2.5% urine or urea, which is nitrogen. And then the rest is mineral salts, hormones, enzymes, other random things in there. And dung is 80% water. And then there's a lot of bacteria, nitrogen, calcium, phosphorus, potassium, magnesium, sodium, that kind of stuff. And if you want to like just as a sidebar, maybe we can circle around to it sometime, but uh like when you start amassing that for like a herd there's a lot of nutrients that are going on the ground and you can look at it from a national level and it's it's a huge issue that we have to deal with actually uh, but that's that's a story for another time so let's, let's get back <laughs> to our bees cows and grass so cows poop put it on the ground and then we have our arthropods that really take advantage of that and the reason we focus on dung beetles first for a lot of ranchers in our areas because they actually open up that nutrient because Cow pat sits on the ground It actually gets like this seal. If you ever looked at one after a few days, it seals over. And it has like a crust on it, a little bit of seal and the flies get there really fast. Like within an hour, they're on a cow pat within minutes. Usually they can do that because it's still wet. It hasn't sealed over, but a lot of other insects can't get in once it's sealed up. So dung beetles come in there and there's a big kind of burly guys that basically make a tunnel highway network through your cow pie. That opens it up for all these other beneficial insects like staph linen beetles or Rove beetles, there are those, uh, parasitoid wasps, and a whole host of other kind of weird beetles and that sort of thing that come in there and help to control pests on that livestock, fly pests usually, uh, and then also break down those nutrients. And basically what they're doing is they're creating more surface area for the next stage in this process, which is for the earthworms, nematodes, bacteria, fungi that recycle it into your soils. Plants take advantage of those available nutrients uh, rather than letting it sit on your ground and kind of oxidize out a lot of that nitrogen, uh, which translates to more nutritious plants for both bees and cattle. Because some of these grazing systems, after you do this, we see the plant community respond and soil community respond a lot differently. Uh, so they've Richard Teague and Urs Kruger, Sam Mosier have kind of showed some of this cool stuff where there's more carbon nitrogen in your soil. Uh, the soil infiltrates water better, uh, two to three times more orange biomass of the plant community, improved plant community composition, improved fungal and bacterial ratios in our soils. And then that in turn, improves the forage quality for our bees out there uh and there's some there's some cool studies looking at like vermicomposting and how that improves actual bee health from improved soils that's awesome and then thus the cattle's or the the bees can improve the forage out there for the cattle and the cattle can keep improving forage for bees and it's kind of this weird loop so
0: that was a long yeah. to answer. Sorry. No, no, no. It was great. It raises like a lot of things that I wanted to, um, like as you were talking. There was like more questions I had for you. <laughs> uh, so, the the first thing I wanted to bring up, and it's more of a, a sidebar, is like in a lot of regenerative groups on like Facebook and things like that. You see a lot of farmers that have been farming for a long time who are like, "Hey, what's this thing in my around my the cow dung? I've never seen this this bug before, and it's usually a dung beetle." And uh, I'm curious, because I don't know the answer to this. Like, what are the prerequisites? Because I'm assuming like a lot of traditional farmers have cows and therefore have cow dung there. So, why aren't they used to seeing this in a traditional management system versus like a regenerative system? Or do you think they're just being more more aware of what's going on? Yeah.
1: I wonder if they're just noticing the bugs, you know? Yeah. (laughs) Because you found dung beetles everywhere, right? Mm -hmm. Even if you're... Even if you're managing the shit out of your land and you're, you know, and you've got a bunch of cows on one plot of land, like you're still gonna have dung beetles.
2: Yeah, yeah. Even a conventional system. I find dung beetles. I just I I wonder, and this is just pure speculation on my part, is it if it's not because the regenerative ranchers or amp or mob grazers, whatever you want to call them, it's because they're out there more. And they're paying attention to the biology that's going on in their land because they care about it because they understand that that biology is essentially what's making that system work. Like we just went through this whole thing of essentially a rancher—you could think of them as a nutrient cycling manager—and to make those nutrients cycle, they need the biology, so they pay attention to that. Yeah, uh, that—that's my theory.
0: That would make sense. So I do want to bring up a couple other things that you've mentioned uh, in your description of what was happening. So you talked about this idea of like how important it is for the dung to break down to return nutrients to the soil. You'd mentioned this idea that like it makes the, the plants healthier, which like I think everyone understands, this idea of like if there's more nutrients, the plants are going to be healthier. Now how does that translate into like, does it affect like the pollen levels in the, the flowers that are coming up? or is it just the plants are more resilient so they're flowering more?
2: Could be either one of those. Uh, let's see, I can point to a study here from someone uh, like Cardoza back in 2012, where they kind of applied well, they did apply this vermicompost uh, and they were using cucumbers as their model system. And They don't want to see any behavioral and physiological changes uh, to the pollinator and flower and floral resources. And when they added that compost, that vermicompost, uh, they found that on it significantly increased the bumblebee, they're feeding on those flowers. They had significantly larger and more active ovaries, which is a of nutrition. So the bees are getting some more nutrition from the plants. So the plants had to have more nutrition in them from the vermicomposting, And so that's kind of how you can see how it's working its way through the system.
0: Yeah, that makes sense because I know a lot of bees won't, they can essentially, like, sense the sugar content within the the flowers so they know whether or not it's worth their time to even harvest from them.
2: Uh,
0: like, uh, basically, like, a, a bricks scale for them. Mm-hmm. And um, it would make sense then plants that are healthier are probably producing uh, more of those things that draw the bees in. <laughs> that makes a lot of sense, I guess. In terms of, like, application, are you guys actually, like... like tell me a little bit about, like, what you're doing to see this in practice
1: yeah so i was going to say that about the bricks that's part of our study Um, we've got this two-year study right now we're trying to do it this summer again we did it last summer where we took some of our beehives and we put them out at different locations um, where the ranchers are managing their cattle differently so if they're continuously grazing or if they're uh, grazing them like in a rotation and then we're going out there and we're measuring plant biomass we're measuring we're doing floral counts um i'm looking at the bees so i'm looking at the brood um counts for the beehives i'm looking at some weights seeing if they're gaining weight losing weight you know sort of just like basic health metrics and then ryan's also doing rangeland stuff for those same locations
0: how many years have you been doing it or are you still in the first year
1: We have stuff from last summer that we haven't looked at (laughs) as much as we want because we we were just talking about that. We're like, God, I I wish that we could just like talk about what we did last summer and have actual results because it was such a fun study. It was really cool.
0: Yeah, I'm super interested to see like the honey production comparisons to see if that kind of plays out at all.
1: Yeah. And I don't have any analysis done for that yet, um, but it does look like it's there's a pretty interesting difference. And we only did like anecdotally. Yeah, anecdotally, Awesome. I also I measured Varroa too. And something that I found that, you know, this hasn't been like statistically verified or anything. But it kind of looks like the Varroa stayed lower at the um, rotationally grazed sites. Really? Yeah, which is interesting
0: yeah and what did you guys do for maintenance on uh varroa did you guys treat or was it more of a natural and just kind of see what happens or yeah
1: we're, we're kind of trying to do like a natural approach where we don't treat for varroa throughout the summer um this year i did do a, a treatment going into winter just trying to save some hives <laughs> hoping that yeah some of them make it um but that's the first time we've treated for varroa
0: that's awesome. I, I try not to treat and I'm super into the idea of natural beekeeping but it's... Uh, I think what you're you're kind of getting to the point of is that you can't, you can't meaningfully naturally treat beekeeping or bees without addressing like the bigger ecosystem issues. Yeah. It's like one of those things like you always see in like various natural beekeeping groups. It's like, how do you get rid of ants? How do you do this? How do you do that? And you try all these different things and like none of them work. Yeah. You know, I've seen like put mint above the hive or around the hive or like cinnamon or like any of these other things, and they're like, I've never had any of them work. So, I, like there's a lot more going on and it, it ties into this bigger ecosystem issue. So, I guess to get back to my questions a little bit, I know you didn't just, you weren't just, or I believe at least, you weren't focused just on like honeybees, but also like the local bugs in the ecosystem. Now, how did grazing impact that or do you have
2: any data on that?
1: We don't have data from last year.
2: With the pollinator community.
1: Yeah, with the pollinators.
2: Yeah. We, we have some previous studies looking at arthropod diversity in pasture grassland systems uh, that we did three years ago in the southeast U.S. And Interestingly enough, so we measured the dung community, the soil arthropod community, and then the, the foliar community. So what, what insects are up in the plant canopy? And uh, we found that there's more diversity in and the plant canopy arthropods, when you're grazing them regeneratively or or holistically, um, whatever you want to call it, and the soil community actually didn't respond as with more diversity to that kind of grazing treatment. But the the functional guilds. So when we look at essentially when we group arthropods together by the jobs they're performing, so their guild their guilds they change quite a bit in the dung and the foliar community from your grazing so you get more predators and less herbivores in a foliar community which is fantastic yeah
0: it would point to more cycling of the nutrients right yeah i'm really curious about the fact that you said there didn't seem to be much change in the soil do you think that's because it's a longer process for that those changes or do you think it's has to do with maybe the species or like like I, I think about like cattle, for example, and I, I'm not sure what you are looking at grazing in the South, but cattle really aren't a good species for grazing in the Southeastern United States. So, it would make sense then that like, that maybe even doing a, a, a holistic grazing or whatever term you might want to use still wouldn't really produce like optimal results.
2: Yeah. Yeah. Oh, man, you struck at the thing that I've been thinking. <laughs> I'm writing this paper right now and I've been trying to figure out what's going on. Why isn't that soil arthropod community responding? And a couple theories I have on that. One, we've seen that soil arthropods usually respond differently to regenerative practices. They're a little slower. And I think it might be because they're generally less mobile than, you know, they're crawling around in the soil most of the time. They're not going to move across to pastures as much or, or row crop fields as their foliar counterparts that are like grasshoppers and flies and other things that move around really well. The other thing that concerns me is maybe we're not measuring it correctly. Uh, and that, that's, that's what kind of keeps me up at night. Uh, if we, if we did something, maybe that did, we didn't capture what we needed to capture within that community correctly. And I think of things like mites and, and all those smaller critters that are making up that community in the soil that we usually don't measure. We usually measure mostly insects, but there's a lot of other things that are really important in the soil community. Yeah. Not hundred percent sure.
0: <laughs> hey, thanks for tuning in to the Poor Prols Almanac. This is Andy reminding you that if you're looking for more content outside of the scope of the podcast or sources, recommended readings, or ways to support us, you can find that at poorprols.com. Further, we've expanded our delivery into video content on our YouTube channel where we're able to show step-by-step how to do many of the processes that we talk about within the podcast. We have also started a Twitch channel where we platform various folks on skills from DIY mushroom production to the various methods to keep land out of the hands of developers. Again, all this can be found at PortPolls.com, and we look forward to seeing you over there. What species were you grazing? I'm assuming it was cattle, but was it anything else?
2: Uh, it was pretty much cattle on all the pastures, except for one, uh, one rancher had some sheep that he was you know, grazing with his cattle.
0: Did the uh, results happen to be any different with those sheep?
2: Uh, not, not really, which is interesting. You'd expect it to be a little different, wouldn't you? Yeah. Uh, with, with those different livestock. So uh, at least nothing statistically different that really jumped out at us.
0: Yeah, that's interesting. You talked about the bees being good for the uh, the grazing. So that's the side we haven't really talked about. We spend a lot of time talking about how grazing is good for bees, but not the other way around. I'm not sure who wants to talk about that a little bit, but I'm really interested because I'm, I'm struggling to have an understanding of that piece.
1: Well, I mean, it comes back to this whole looking at as a system thing again. And I'm using honeybees because we can measure that. And, you know, we've got a pretty standardized way of, Managing the, the colonies and measuring, you know, health um, responses if they're healthy or not. But the whole system, you know, requires pollinators no matter what you do. And so this pollination is going to increase the health of the plant community, and then that's also going to, you know, feed back into whatever's eating the plant community. So I think it, the connection is sort of just there in the system. that makes sense
0: yeah that makes sense
1: and then for you like you you're working with sheep right
0: sheep chickens ducks turkeys geese
1: so like for your grazing plan you've got uh your trees worked in right yeah so your fruit fall and stuff um you know pollination would be a part of the fruit set which would also impact you know how your how your grazers are eating in the fall or you know whatever time of year you put them under the trees
0: yeah yeah definitely i could see that that's one thing i Part of the reason why I got bees the first time was because I was not happy with the pollination rates that I was getting on my annuals. Mm -hmm. And I was like, I don't understand, like, I've got these tons of flowers everywhere and nothing's fruiting. And I brought in bees and it didn't make much of a difference, what I think actually was making the difference is that there's a lot of spraying here for um, like West Nile virus. And I'm right near the highway, so like that's where they spray. Uh, So I'm just like right in the dead zone. Yeah. So we've had a little bit of improvement, and I think some of that is because of the land management here. I, I think we're kind of like a little bit of an oasis now in like a suburban hell. <laughs> so I, I think we draw a lot of interest that way, but it it's been a slow process, which actually it makes me wonder about like with the work you guys are doing. I'm assuming not all of the sites, or probably none of the sites, if you're looking for like that that standard point to start this research, were doing mob grazing beforehand. So, I'm, I'm interested a little bit about like how you saw over the course of a year or two or three years, how the ecosystem changed from these practices in terms of like the general diversity that you were seeing. And, uh, you know, is this something people, if, if someone were to buy a farm today and it's like just a traditional farm, how long do you, does it take to start kind of seeing those impacts?
1: That's an awesome question. That's something we've been doing like a ton of research on for years trying to figure out um how long does it take to how long does it take to transition you know into a functional ecosystem <laughs>
2: mm-hmm. so yeah. yeah we're starting those studies now uh, typically in our in our previous studies we've been talking about we select systems that have been in place for 5 years because we want to see the effect of that system and not the effect of transition because you hit the nail on the head there there is a transition period it takes a few years for biology to respond and come back to an area. And if you look at some of Fred Provenza's work uh, and some other folks, um, they're saying three years. And anecdotally, after talking to a lot of farmer or ranchers in this area, the Northern Plains, in our climate, it takes minimum three, sometimes five, before you really start to notice changes coming back to the landscape.
0: Yeah, that lines up with what I've seen. Uh, I would say it was around year three, like the end of year three, you could see it by the fall of year three. Okay. And like by no means, like I've got a lot of land still to manage and change. But you can start to see like the amount of dragonflies and how quickly uh, manure is getting broken down, you know, all those things that suggest that like the the ecology is changing. Mm -hmm. Uh, And of course, this is like totally like just based on vision, not like any actual assessments. But yeah, I would, I would agree with that in, yeah. in my own personal experiences.
1: Yeah, yeah even cool. even anecdotally, like just walking around these different pastures, they're so different. Like <laughs> the ones where the, the ranchers are rotationally grazing, there's just the, the flower community is so much more intense and more diverse. And, you know, like we do transects and we set them out and walk along them and count. And I'm, I'm always excited about those because we're actually going to find some cool plants. We're going to be like, oh, I've never seen that before or I have to learn that plant because it's like, it's new.
0: <laughs> yeah. Yeah, that's awesome. That does bring up another question. Like most farms are basically like seeded based on like probably a hundred different varieties, but realistically, most farmers are only running about a dozen different plants between forbs and grasses. And obviously, for 95% of the United States, those are not native species or they've been improved. So, they're not like natural native species. So, when you talk about like this diversity coming in, obviously, that means that's not a part of that 100 or so or dozen or so plants. What are your thoughts about how that's happening? Like, what is happening that's causing native plants to or even like uh, regionally native, maybe not native, you know, given climate change and all this other stuff, but these new plants to enter an ecosystem where you haven't explicitly gone and added these seeds. I know that's a big question to ask. I'm just curious.
1: <laughs> I mean, we do see like if we burn our prairie, we see the natives just kind of pop up, you know? Or at least a lot yep. of the flowers and the forbs. So it's sort of like that that management of the grasses that are kind of staying in the way of everybody else.
0: So you think it's like a seed bank thing?
2: I think there's a lot at least in our prairie systems there's a lot in the seed bank. But uh, I guess, yeah, maybe you could reword the question a little bit for me here.
0: Sure. So, you guys are talking about the fact that when you start mob grazing or holistically grazing, Mm -hmm. these pastures are going from like a half dozen, you know, red clover and timothy grass or whatever they're growing and then you're starting to see these new species that hadn't been there before. So, Where are they coming from if, you know, basically, I'm assuming that most of the the farms you're working on are like in areas where everyone has a farm and they're all growing basically the same thing. What's driving that diversity? Like where are the seeds coming from? And I think the seed bank is probably a big piece of it, but they've always been there. So is it just the additional nutrition that's giving them that opportunity? The grazing cycling itself, something about the way that they're... I, I don't know the I don't know if anyone on earth at this point has an answer for it, even though people keep seeing seeing it, but since you guys are doing a lot of research in this area, uh, I'm really interested to get your thoughts even if it's not like statistically verified at this point.
2: yeah, well, I could speak anecdotally about it um, quite a bit uh, from what we've seen visiting a lot of uh, places here in the northern plains yeah, the seed bank plays a lot of it there's there's a lot of things that are They're either growing out there or waiting for their opportunity to sprout from a seed. And with some of these rotationally grazing, mob grazing practices, essentially you're cutting back evenly the potential invasive competition for them. So that allows an opening for some of those natives to be a little more competitive across that landscape that are just there, but you're not really noticing because there's just one one of them out there and it keeps getting nipped off right away because the the livestock likes that one. It's very palatable to them. So there, there's some of that and then that gives them room to expand more within that system. And a really bizarre kind of interesting thing we've noticed a lot when we're I guess it's not that bizarre, but um we found a lot of our natives, they're they're really tailored towards certain little microclimates within. Those grassland systems, uh, for us here, side hills. If you're on a side hill, you're gonna get a lot more natives. And where hills maybe come together and there's a little gully or something between them, we see a lot more invasives. Or like in the flat bottom ground, we see some more invasives. For us, it's a lot of smooth brome is our, and Kentucky bluegrass. And that might be because it's wetter there and the natives are more tolerant of those drier climate or microclimates on the side hills, so they can outcompete the natives or the invasives. Excuse me. And it might be there's more nutrient, uh, nitrogen, or something like that available there that the the natives don't need as much, but the invasives can really take advantage of and outcompete them in those those little micro environments. Yeah. And so by your rotational grazing, you can essentially pick and choose how you. The winners and losers out there uh, and, and really set those invasives back and let the natives flourish a little more.
0: Yeah. Uh, we recently, well, when this episode comes out like nine months ago, I had a guest on Dr. Lynn Hunsinger who's been working with trying to, well, basically grazing and trying to bring back a lot of native species in California. And she was talking about this idea of like grazing as a tool to reduce invasive pressure because the native grasses grow a lot slower but once they're kind of at equal footing, when they're a little bit older, they tend to be able to beat out and grow faster on that second half of their growth cycle, which makes a lot of sense because most invasives, especially in like pasture lands, like you're talking about like Kentucky bluegrass, uh, they're designed or been bred in some cases to be fast early growers because the plan was to harvest them early anyway. Hmm. So, is this something you're also seeing? That like that, that chopping in the mob grazing is giving those uh, natives some chances to to get into the, that space?
2: Yes. Uh, short answer. Yes. Uh, that's what we're seeing on a lot of our regenerative, uh, holistic pastures. And, but I should, should mention it's, it's a little bit more than just the grazing, uh, a lot of the folks we're working with, they're using that grazing as a tool in tandem with other things like biological control with using insects. Or, or they might be using multi-species grazing, uh, here, sheep a lot of times. So if we would kind of take the leafy spurge as an example of this, I've had ranchers that can use that grazing to control leafy spurge, which is a big invasive in our part of the world. But it works a lot better if you integrate in some of these spurge beetles and move those around Or you do some multi-species grazing with sheep because they love; they'll eat a lot of spurge more than cattle will. There's a great thesis out of North Dakota State. uh, Jasmine Cutter looked at it was kind of interesting how this multi-species grazing with sheep and cattle can affect floral resources for bees and butterflies and that that diversity. Just to kind of bring this back to the bee point, and they found there was uh, in the in the sheep grazed paddocks there's way less floral resources and the cattle grazed ones as an effect had three to 16 times more native bees in them which Uh,
1: makes a ton of sense considering other preferences you know yeah like what they want to go out there Uh
2: so it's it's both good and bad so you have to look at what's your invasive community out there and what you're trying to encourage with the natives. And, uh, if you're trying to encourage a lot of native floral resources, well, maybe then the, the multi-species grazing machine maybe isn't the right one for you, but, uh,
0: or maybe just graze them very over long, very long periods of time. So like a hundred days versus like going through three times a year.
2: Yeah, yeah, exactly. So, so it's a bit more nuanced than just, I'm going to put on some mob grazing and it's going to work exactly how I want it to. You have to kind of understand a little bit how the the grasses and those forage and what you're trying to manage for works.
0: Yeah. You have to be, I mean, it's very holistic and I know that's why the term holistic grazing exists, but it's very much like within the context of your location.
2: Yeah. Yeah.
0: I guess to uh, tie this back to like bees, like you were saying, theoretically, like sheep are not necessarily good or better than uh, cattle when it comes to like trying to produce more flower content for bees to harvest
1: yeah if you're just managing for pollinators then you're trying to keep as many forbs and flowering plants as you possibly can and Mm -hmm. for throughout the entire year you know have some resources for all year round up until winter
0: were there any like surprises that came out of the research like i think a lot of people that are interested and i'm assuming even with the baseline knowledge or i don't want to say baseline with the knowledge that you have Uh, going into this were there any real surprises that you're like I did not I did not see that coming or like in retrospect that makes a lot of sense but at the time like I hadn't put these two disparate pieces of information together
1: and for me I ended up with just like way more questions (laughs) than I did before I had the study before I started it so now and like even your question about where did the flowers come from like that's kind of blowing my mind right now and I'm thinking about onions. I'm like, where did the onions come from? Like, <laughs> they must have already been there, right? Like, it's an onion, so I don't know. I think I just have more questions.
2: <laughs> That's awesome. You did notice there's a lot of like, spur- like there are some weird things that happen on some of our conventionally ran. Um, yeah, like we started
1: where- noticing um, invasives on the conventionally managed um, sites. You know, so there's like way more thistles and way more spurge, and then even at the the spurge site, I noticed that. The bees were not doing that great, and the ants were kind of like dominating all the spurge. <laughs> so it's almost like the bees weren't weren't getting access to it. I don't know. It was really cool, really yeah. interesting. But
2: you can get these weird quirks on those conventionally managed sites where you get these huge blooms of an invasive. Mm-hmm. And you, you normally you're like, oh, invasive, but sometimes it was maybe to the bees advantage which yeah. is a weird cork but it's like one mass bloom all at once for them yeah and then it's done the rest of the year
1: and that has a lot to do with stocking density too mm-hmm. so yeah you could have a yeah. lot of flowers if you you know don't i don't know as much about it but if you don't put as many cattle out and kind of let it rest a little more mm-hmm. so you yeah. could you could have like a conventionally managed system that still has a lot of flowers
0: yeah yeah, I mean, again, it goes back to what the, that local ecosystem looks like, and especially with invasives like here, uh, we have a lot of Japanese knotweed, but it also flowers late into the year, which is great for bees, even though it's like like an objectively terrible plant for our ecosystem. But it doesn't, and again, I think this speaks to like a lot of things. It's never as black and white as we try to pretend that things are. It's you know much more complicated than that, and uh, we we have to do a better job of acknowledging when these like exotic species come in that they're not purely bad. It doesn't mean that they don't have problems, but it's more than just being like, this is an all negative thing that's happened.
1: Yeah, it comes back to that question of like, what are you managing for, <laughs> you know? Mm-hmm. If you're just managing yeah. for natives, which natives, and mm-hmm. how long ago, what, what ecosystem, you know, how many years ago did you, was it perfect <laughs> in your brain, you yeah. know?
0: Yeah, and how does that fit into climate change where yeah. the ecosystem that existed really can't exist in most places?
1: Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah.
0: So, it's it's a difficult uh, challenging question but I think a lot of the work like what you guys are doing is really important in kind of figuring out and navigating a way forward because you need to understand the relationships which we really in a very fundamental stage compared to like a lot of other sciences. And I think in order for us to kind of get ahead of the changes coming with climate change, we have to have a much more thorough understanding of these relationships.
1: Yeah, we have to understand it. And right now I don't really feel like we do.
0: <laughs> yeah.
1: That's pretty interesting.
0: Ryan and Katya, this has been great. Can you guys plug uh, where you guys work or if you want to plug some other projects? I'm happy to uh, send some folks your way.
1: Yeah, so we work for a Foundation. Foundation. Um, we do mostly insect-related research in regenerative ag and um, sustainable agriculture. Um, And we're starting a new project called the Thousand Farm Initiative. It's supposed to be, we're trying to make it like the biggest sampling of farms for um, diverse communities and insect communities that has ever happened pretty much. And we're trying to go all over the United States and sample a thousand farms, which is a huge um, step up from what we've been doing (laughs) lately. Yeah, so we work for Ectisus Foundation and we have a really cool farm here that's a functioning regenerative ag farm. Um, it's in the middle of like the Midwest. So we're, we're just kind of surrounded by cornfields. And like you said earlier, like you're trying to stop the spraying from the road. We've got like no spray signs out front because we're literally the only place in the whole area. That's like, please don't spray. <laughs> <laughs> um, and so, yeah, we've got a really cool farm and we've got a research lab that's like in the farm. Um, and we've got llamas and pigs and, um, chickens, all sorts of geese that are really violent, Um, ducks, you know, the usual. (laughs) Yeah, they do that. Yeah.
0: (laughs) Yeah. Um, So, actually, before I let you go, now I got to ask about the llamas. Yeah. Why do you have llamas? Like, how how is that fitting in? I know people graze them for like various reasons, but I'm curious why you guys have them.
1: Honestly, right now, we have llamas because they're really cute. (laughs) I I feel like that's the main reason. they're just cute and fluffy uh there's like some plans to maybe start making yarn with them and bring them out for grazing but alpacas yeah we've got alpacas
0: yeah and i i know a lot of people that use uh, alpacas for guard animals uh, i don't know if that's what you guys are doing with them
1: not yet but i would be really surprised to see them attack anything
0: <laughs> just... i mean they're pretty big and scary looking so yeah. I, that's i think half of it <laughs> all right guys this has been great thanks so much thank you
1: yeah.